there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My topic this morning is the omnipotence of love. The omnipotence of love. Now, you know that the word omnipotence means the all-powerfulness of love. And I was glad to see this motto up here, speaking the truth in love. In the book of John alone, the word love occurs 28 times. And that doesn't count the loved and loveth and loving occurrences of the word. I don't know how many times it's mentioned in the Bible, but it is certainly the key to the Christian life. And Christians are to be known because they love each other. I wonder how many onlookers there are in our churches who wonder what these Christians profess if that is to be the sign of our true Christianity, love for each other. And of course, we're not talking about romantic love. We're not talking about the soupy, wishy-washy notion that Hollywood would dish out to us. We're talking about sacrifice. Love, according to scripture, is always sacrifice. It costs a great deal. And it is hard, and it is a complete reversal of our natural sense of values. The kind of love that God commands you and me to exercise is a complete reversal of our natural sense of values. I deplore the fact that so few churches nowadays are teaching the great hymns of the faith. And I'm very blessed myself in having come from a family in which we sang a hymn every single morning. We sang a different hymn every morning. We went straight through a hymn book, and we sang all the stanzas. And we are greatly blessed from having had that kind of discipline from our parents. There are six of us in our family, and I'm sure that each one of us would be able to quote from memory dozens, perhaps hundreds, of the hymns which have taught us theology. We learned theology very painlessly by singing hymns. Now, I certainly would hope that many of you are familiar with the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And already in just those four short lines, we have two illustrations of a complete reversal of our natural sense of values. What do we consider gain? That's a natural sense of values. But the hymn writer says, I, I pour contempt. My richest gain I count but loss. Have you thought about counting as loss your richest gain? 
if your richest gain is something in a worldly sense, which is what he's referring to, of course. And then poor contempt on all my pride. It doesn't come naturally to any of us, does it? But that's what scriptural love is about. That's what divine love is about. And that, of course, is what we saw on the cross of Jesus Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. What are the vain things that charm you most? Well, I won't dare to suggest what they might be. You know what the vain things that charm you most are. Are you prepared, honestly now, to sacrifice them? The next stanza. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow wounded down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We can sing hymns so thoughtlessly, can't we? And I'm sure that probably for the first 12 years of my life, I sang those hymns in family prayers completely thoughtlessly. You know that little children can memorize almost instantly. They can memorize the television commercials so fast it would make your head spin. And they can memorize a whole lot of other stuff that's not going to stand them in very good stead spiritually. So I urge you mothers and fathers, sit your children down, teach them poetry, teach them the old hymns of the church. If nobody in your family can play the piano or any other instrument, you can still learn to sing, and you can get yourself a hymn book and teach those words. It is a very painless method. And I'm sure that I paid very little attention to the words of most of the hymns that we learned. I remember paying very close attention. When I went to bed at night, I used to be kind of scared and I was always worried about things. And one of the hymns that our parents taught us to go to bed on was safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast, there by his love or shaded, sweetly my soul shall rest. And when I'd look out, look at the dark or think I saw shapes or weird things such as we see in the dark, I would often think about those words. We learned the Lord's Prayer. I didn't think about the words of the Lord's Prayer until I got older, but the point I'm making is never mind if the children don't understand the words you're giving them. They will someday, and it will be stuck in their minds. The earlier they learn it, the longer it's going to last. And we who are old now, I'm not just getting old, I got there. <laughs> and I know that my short-term memory is unbelievably short. I can't remember two seconds ago what I said a lot of times. And uh, it's an illustration of the deterioration of the powers of our memories. But long-term memory stays there. I still remember the words to those hymns. So be encouraged, you young parents. I'll give you two points for those of you who are trying to 
figure out what in the world I'm talking about and where I'm going, I'll give you two things to write down in your notebooks. The first one is, look first at the demonstration of divine love. Look first at the demonstration of divine love. We read in 1 John 3.16, which is the corollary to John 3.16. I'm sure that most of you would be able to quote John 3.16, but probably fewer would be able to quote 1 John 3.16. But it says, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we in our turn must lay down our lives for each other. Now there's a definition of divine love. The demonstration of divine love was the cross of Jesus Christ. Of course, in every moment of his life, he was demonstrating love, love for God, love for people. But the crowning example is the cross. And that's why most churches have crosses, because in the cross of Christ we glory, towering or the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head, sublime. Look first at the demonstration of divine love. One of the old creeds says, He for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. Just think of those simple words, for us men. And that is, of course, the generic term which means people. He did that for us. He came down from heaven. Another hymn that I loved as a little girl was Out of the Ivory Palaces. And my friend Essie and I decided that that was our favorite hymn. And that hymn was played when Essie died at the age of nine years. We were both nine years old, and I will never forget her funeral. She was in a white casket, and she was wearing a white dress, and she had a white rose in her hand. And the organist of her church was the author of that hymn. Henry Barraclough was his name. He wrote both the words and the music. And she learned to love it in that church. And of course, I've never forgotten that it was played at her funeral. And it says, My Lord hath garments so wondrous fine, and myrrh their texture fills. Its fragrance reached to this heart of mine, with joy my being fills. Out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go out of the ivory palaces. Have you stopped to think about them? They're mentioned, you know, in the Psalms. It does speak of ivory palaces. And he left all that and came into a world of woe. That was the proof of his love. Have you stopped to think about the fact that Jesus, the creator of the world, he whose hands had made the stars, was willing to be confined in a woman's womb. That, to me, is absolutely staggering. To think of the Lord of the universe, a prisoner in a dark womb, helpless. He was willing to pass through the birth canal like any other baby, 
This was God, remember. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Why did he do it? Because he loves us. He was a child. I hope you know that beautiful Christmas hymn, Once in Royal David's City. And there's a stanza in there that's a wonderful one to teach your children. For he is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, he knew. Isn't it amazing that the Lord of the universe was willing to be little, weak, and helpless? He had to learn to walk. He had to be fed by a human mother. He undoubtedly fell down and skinned his knee and cried because he was a child like the rest of us. He lived in a poor home, a humble home. He was subject to all the various necessities of poverty. That was what he had chosen. And he spent those 30 hidden years in anonymity. Wouldn't you love to know much more about what he did in those 30 years? We know nothing, next to nothing. We know what he did when he was 12 years old. He upset his parents greatly by not returning with them to their home. And it took them three days to discover in this great retinue of people that he was not there. They just took it for granted that he was. And of course, they had to return to Jerusalem. And as Mary said to him, we have sought you sorrowing. Where have you been? Why did you treat us like this? And it was at that age, 12, that he began to take spiritual responsibility. And he said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And that must have been a sword in Mary's heart. This son that she had birthed and raised and fed, that he would abandon them like that. Now he's talking about another father, different from this earthly stepfather or foster father. Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? How much do you think about your 12-year-old children? Are you laying before them this solemn responsibility? It is now time to be an adult. There are no teenagers in the Bible, are there? Jesus was a child, and then he was... A spiritually responsible, and he was about his father's business. But remember, he was also still under the authority of Joseph and Mary. And the Bible tells us that he went back in obedience to them. But he, there were things going on in his heart between him and his father, which need to be going on in any 12-year-old's heart. It was when I was 12 that I came across a poem, The Prayer by Betty Scott Stamm, that you've heard me quote so many times on the radio. It was that that I copied into my Bible as a prayer of consecration and sub submission. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. And work out thy whole will in my life. At any cost. Now and forever. He was the prince of glory. And he allowed things to happen to him. 
I just came across that phrase recently in one of my books that I was reading, not one of my books, a book that I possess, which was deeply instructive to me. The Prince of Glory allowing things to happen to him. John 14, verse 30. Jesus is speaking here in these last few chapters, 14, 15, and 16, to his disciples, giving them his final instructions about his leaving them and what they are to do. And he tells them, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. The prince of this world, of course, is his arch enemy, Satan. Now get this, he has no hold on me, he has no rights over me, but the world must be shown that I love the Father and will do exactly what he says. I will do exactly what my Father has commanded me. There's a tremendous lesson there for you and me. Of course Satan is after us if we are determined to do the will of God. If a 12-year-old child writes in the back of her Bible, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes and accept thy will for my life, you know that the enemy of, of God is going to do everything in his power to frustrate that commitment. And Jesus here is giving his final words to his disciples with whom he has walked and talked for three years. And he's telling them once again, the prince of this world is coming, he has no rights over me, but the world must be shown that I love the Father and will do exactly what he says. And so Jesus Christ was put into the hands of evil men. The mystery of divine humiliation, divine helplessness, Think about it. He became a captive when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. They came after him with swords and clubs and torches, and they captured him. And he allowed them to do this. He could have called legions of angels, but he didn't. And they then took him into the council chamber, and from the council chamber to the praetorium, and from the praetorium to the cross. He was led, he was dragged, he was hustled. The omnipotence of love. He who was God by nature became a man, took upon himself the form of a servant, a slave, who was going to be told what to do and put into the hands of evil men. The hands that made the stars were now completely motionless on the cross. Just three weeks ago, my husband and I were in Debrecen, Hungary. And after I had spoken, we were invited to go to a museum where there are three world-famous paintings by the Hungarian painter Munkashi. And it was only within the last year that those three paintings have been exhibited in any one place together. They've been owned by different people in different parts of the world. And they are three paintings of the last day of Christ, of Christ's life on earth, before he was crucified. 
And this museum in Debrecen has been constructed specifically to house these three paintings. There are many other things, but there's one room that you walk into. And the painting on that wall, I, I, would, I would think, is about the size of that balcony there down to the floor. That is the size of that painting. It fills the whole wall. Then there's another painting on that wall and a third one over here. And the first one shows Jesus captured and being led through the jeering mob. And then the second one shows Jesus in front of Pilate. And Pilate is sitting there like this, trying to make up his mind what to do with this man. And you can see the faces of the people jeering, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate is just at a loss, wishy-washy. What shall I do? And of course, the Bible tells us he was afraid of what the people might say if he didn't go ahead and crucify him. And then, of course, the third panel shows the figure of Jesus on the cross with those hands motionless. And again, the evil faces, the smug smirks on the faces of those who are just delighted. This is the omnipotence of love. Love is the most powerful force in the universe, but it's always sacrificial. Again, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we in our turn must lay down our lives for each other. The greatest act of all his life was done when he was helpless, powerless to do anything. And there's a great lesson there for you and me. When we feel as though our love has gone cold or that we have no love whatsoever for that awful person that has made our lives so miserable or that we know we're not really loving even those precious little children that God has given to us, as we ought to. Or we're not loving our husbands, who have turned out to be such prize packages. You know, surprise packages. Let's remember that the greatest act of all Jesus' life was done when he was powerless to do anything. And it is as we come to the Lord in our nothingness our powerlessness, our helplessness, that he then is able to enable us to love in a way which would be absolutely impossible. I need to know where Linda or somebody is that can tell me what time I'm supposed to stop here. I failed to find that out. Where is she? If somebody can tell me, I see that somebody's running out there, they'll come back and let me know. You, I know you don't want me to go over time. And of course, on the radio, I never can go over time, but I have a timer right in front of me, and I don't have that this morning, so I'm extremely conscious of time. But now we come to the second point, the power to love. And there is my husband. Can you tell me what time I'm supposed to stop, Lars? 
I have about 18 minutes. Thank you. That's just right. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I know he's always going to come in and give me a 10-minute signal, but if I, I want to know how many minutes I have before 10 minutes. So, <clears throat> Some years ago, I had a letter from a very wealthy, high-powered businessman in Boston who, to my astonishment, wrote to say that he listened to Gateway to Joy. And the letter was a very unusual one, very articulate, and so we decided we would like to meet this man and his wife, and so my husband and I had dinner with them. And, of course, the first thing that I wanted to know was, tell us your story. I love to hear people's stories, and I, t I love to be able to tell people's stories. And so he spent about an hour. His wife didn't say a word. He sat there and told us how striving, how constantly he, str he strove to make money, to be powerful, to be visible, to be known, all the things that the world goes after. You know, it says in Revelation that there's only one who is worthy, and that is the Lamb, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And those are, that's a complete list that is a, an exhaustive list of what the world is after. Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And Jim was after all of those things. But he said, I met a guy on the railroad station platform when we were waiting for the commuter train, and he invited me to a Bible class. And I went to that Bible class, and I became Christian. Of course, he gave us many more details. But he said, you know what God said to me right off the bat? As soon as I became a Christian, as soon as I made up my mind, I want this, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What do you think God said to him? Go home and love your wife. What's that got to do with power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing? What's it got to do with big money and big visibility? Well, he and his wife had had a miserable marriage, and they were on the verge of a divorce. But he said, I made up my mind that I would do what God said. And he went home, and he began to love his wife in a way that he had never loved her before. And when he finally finished his side of the story, then, of course, I was eager to hear hers. <laughs> I said, was there a difference? She said, there was a difference like night and day. She said, it was so radical and so sudden and so overwhelming, I couldn't believe it. I thought, this guy's got to be faking it. But she said, you know, he faked it for a whole year. <laughs> she said, finally, I had to come to terms with what had happened to this man. And of course, he had told me what had happened. It was a complete reversal of his natural sense of values. And that couple, of course, is still together. The sequel to the story is he gave up his job. He went to Indiana to teach in a little unheard of Christian college where he could teach economics or something. I don't remember what it was. Gave up all that fortune and fame that he was looking for. And I don't think they'd been there more than about six weeks, maybe two months, when she came down with one of the most virulent forms of cancer. Fast-moving, dangerous, almost untreatable. And I don't know what the diagnosis is today. I'm sure that if she had died by now, he would have let us know because he's kept us up with 
the progress of this terrible disease. But he loves her, and they learned the omnipotence of love. It is all-powerful. It will change your world. 1 John 3, 10-15, the passage that from which I read, I'll read you some more. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Not a child of God. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who murdered, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And Jim and Lizzie's marriage was death as long as they did not love each other. And of course you have to get rid of all those Hollywood notions of what love is about. Romance and warm fuzzies and feeling good about each other and excitement and all the Roman candles going off and the stars and stripes forever and all the rest of this stuff that Hollywood is continually dishing out. Just absolute rubbish. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers, and anyone who does not love remains in death. And I dare say there might be somebody here this morning who is remaining in death because you refuse to love. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Jesus spoke to the man with the withered hand, and he said, stretch forth your hand. Now that was an impossibility, wasn't it? That is the one thing that that man could not possibly do. And here were all these vultures of Pharisees just surrounding Jesus, waiting to catch him in something, because it was Sunday, it was the Sabbath. And he wasn't supposed to heal anybody on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. And so they were just eager to find evidence against him. And Jesus was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said, which is better, to give life or not to? I better go back to the passage in Mark 4. 3, Mark 4, yes. No, Mark 3, excuse me. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And he said, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent, and he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man listened to Jesus, not to the Pharisees. And he stretched out his hand. He did the impossible thing. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And what was the Pharisees' response? They went out and began to plot how they might kill Jesus. They could not stand it. And the devil can't stand it. And the non-Christians can't stand it. 
If we begin to act against our, will, our feelings and according to the will of God. Several years ago, I was speaking in Boston, and a lady came, and she heard me say one thing that stuck in her mind, and that was that we, we must love our enemies. And of course, I was quoting Jesus' words. And Jesus said that we are to treat one another as we would treat Christ. Matthew 25, 40 was the verse that I quoted. Inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it for me. And she went out of there just in a fury. This stuff that Elizabeth Elliot gives, you know, it's, it's absolutely impossible. It's ridiculous. It's outrageous. How am I supposed to love this man that I'm married to? And she was fuming. But before she got home, she said, I made up my mind. I am going to try it. And she walked in, and she found her husband, as usual, sitting on the sofa, like a mummy, she said, looking at the TV. And she had put up with 33 years of that, and they had already decided, just shortly before this meeting, that they were going to get a divorce, because they couldn't stand each other, never had been able to, and they thought, what's the point of being miserable for whatever few years we've got left? So they were going to get a divorce. So she walks in there, and she said, here he is, as usual, looking like a mummy, looking at the TV, and I could not stand that sight. But she said, the Lord gave me grace to say to him, honey, may I speak to you for a moment? And for the first time in 33 years, he turned off the TV to listen. Well, then she said, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> what do you say when you're talking to Jesus? It's Jesus sitting on the sofa. Inasmuch as you've done it for him, you've done it for me, Jesus said. What am I supposed to say? And she said, forgive me. And she began to list her wrongs against her husband. That was not what she was intending to do at all. <laughs> and he stopped her before she got halfway through the list. And he said, wait a minute, honey. He said, I've got a few things to confess to you, too. And in no time at all, God had given them the power to love each other. And she said, Elizabeth, we have fallen in love as a way, in a way that we never dreamed, even in our engagement period. Well, Jesus enables us to do the impossible thing, the thing which absolutely cuts across our natural desires, that which is a complete reversal. Jim's reversal, he began to love his wife. Mrs. G's reversal, she began to love her husband. And it spilled over. Jim's wife began to love Jim. Mrs. G's husband began to love her. A complete reversal of our secular mindset. What Jesus Christ commands, Jesus Christ enables us to do. Let's never forget that. I get many, many letters from women who are just so eager to be married. Their hearts are broken. They've reached 30 or 35 or 40, and there are no prospects, and all their friends are married, and they go to church where everybody looks at them as if, you know, those hopeless single people, and, you know, what's, how come you never got married? I want to know, who are these people that can be so rude 
as to go up to single women or single men and say, how come you never got married? Um, to me, that's one of the rudest questions they could ask, especially if it's to the woman. Now, the man does have a choice, doesn't he? Because he's supposed to be the aggressor. He is the initiator. But the woman is to be quiet, to have a gentle and quiet spirit, to be the receiver, not the initiator. And so I get all these letters, dying for a husband, wishing that they were married. But you know what? I get more letters from women who wish they weren't. <laughs> it's the truth. I don't think there's one topic that comes up more often than miserable marriages. And you keep talking about loving your husband on the radio and all this kind of stuff, and I'd just like you to meet my husband and see if you think that anybody could possibly love him. It is a paradox, but it is, it is possible to do the will of God. When Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand, the man didn't say, I can't. I can't do that. What did he do? Stretched out his hand. God's command is his enabling. Love is the force that overcomes the world. Love is a choice, not a feeling, not a mood, not an emotion, but a choice, a deliberate act of the will. And you and I have got to pray daily that the Lord will enable us to overcome feelings with faith. Because for us women particularly, it is a tremendous temptation to go by our feelings. Well, I don't feel good. And in the morning, I don't feel good until I have my cup of coffee. And I don't want anybody talking to me until I get my cup of coffee. <laughs> Do we have a right to be that nasty to people? Don't say a word to me, I haven't had my coffee. Feelings. Now, I'd like to know how many of you leaped out of bed with alacrity this morning, the minute the alarm clock went off. You could hardly wait to put your feet on the floor. How many of you get up that way? Probably a couple of people, but I don't see any hands right now. But every single one of you, oh yeah, there's, a, there's one down there. She loves to get up. There's one way back there, too. Thank you. Some of us love to get up, and most of us don't. But at any rate, the point is, you're, you all got up this morning, didn't you? Every single one of you got up. Did it have anything to do with feelings? Probably not. It had a great deal to do with will. You had to get up. Maybe you wanted very badly to get up this morning for some reason. God will enable you to do what God wants you to do. And Jesus walked this earth as a man. He had emotions. He had feelings. He wept. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was reviled. He was persecuted. He was hated. He was mocked. He was blindfolded. He was bound. He was slapped. He was flogged and ultimately crucified. But what did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but thine be done. His human nature shrank from that death on the cross. 
feelings, but faith in his Father won the victory. First he prayed, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass. If it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will. Will you ask God this morning to enable you to love in a way that you've not done before, in a way which will cut completely across your feelings and perhaps your worldly mindset, and ask God to enable you to love somebody else as he loves us. This is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we in our turn must lay down our lives for each other. The laying down of my life is a complete reversal of my natural sense of values. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.